where this season we're covering the influx of U.S. capital flooding into the European market. For this season, we have carefully created a list of brilliant individuals who either work at funds who have historically been always in Europe, those who have American roots and have arrived some time ago, or have moved just in the last 12 months or so. Additionally, we have added some amazing founders who have had experience pitching to both U.S. and European funds. Subsequently, we hope to provide you, dear listeners, with a holistic view on how the shift we are seeing in this market is being perceived. In this second episode of this series, and if you haven't listened to the first one, do, myself, Francesca, will be narrating as we explore the key question. Why now has there been an influx of US capital flooding into the European market? But first things first, listeners, let's set something straight something we discussed quite extensively in our first episode, the European ecosystem has been around for some time now. Let's hear from a few of our wonderful guests about this topic. I really think perhaps UiPath kicked this off, particularly on the B2B world. But yeah, I, I think, you know, since then, the groundswell of appetite for Europe has genuinely been astonishing. That is Zoe Chambers, a partner from Frontline, who also agrees that this decision has not come overnight for these US funds. Harry Briggs, a partner at Omas Ventures, also points to European success stories in the 2010s as a catalyst to this groundswell. I guess particularly the, the early 2010s, we started to see more and more big, successful companies emerge. You know, probably the most obvious being Spotify, but in the fintech world, Klarna and Adyen and, you know, a bit later Revolut, Monzo and so on. So as you heard from Harry... The European ecosystem was the birthplace of some very large companies, and these have not gone unnoticed by U.S. funds. And the general consensus is that for a long time, U.S. funds have snapped up the creme de la creme of European tech. Hussain from Hoxton Ventures explains this cherry-picking strategy from U.S. funds well. I think historically, if you looked at all of the Series Bs that were being done in Europe and you took away the the bad series Bs, and this is really easy to do in hindsight because you can see which companies go on to be really good. If you take away the bottom three quartiles and you only look at the top quartile of the series B, you know, based on the ones that actually you know, go on to become real, like real-size companies, 75% or so of those were funded by American firms. So the American firms have been in Europe for a long time and they've been cherry-picking all the good stuff. A pretty impressive statistic, I must say. Another American currently based in Europe is Paul Murphy from Lightspeed, who has also spotted the same pattern. So obviously Europe's been taking off for a while. I think what, what we saw as a fund is that we could, you know, do selective growth investing in Europe from Silicon Valley pretty well um, in some really awesome companies like Personio and Vitillion and Vinted. Um, and those were all sort of sourced, you know, either with someone here locally, but then led by a team in the U.S., but now we are seeing a bit of a shift from U.S. funds. Now they're setting up offices in Europe, and there are a number of theories as to why this is. One of the most common causes cited is that there is more money to be made in Europe now. Both Jan, partner at HV, and Brianne, a principal at Keen Ventures, have also identified this uplift in European performance that is luring U.S. funds to set up shop. First, let's hear from Jan. I think for many, many years, European 
startup investments kind of sucked from a performance perspective, you know, but that's changed. If you look at the big databases, you know, the top tiers, et cetera, actually European VC investments outpacing US VC investments from a performance perspective. And from Brianne? Yeah, I think there's been some really great European tech exits over the last few years. I think prices in general are a little lower and, you know, VC yeah, it's a numbers game, right? It's about making money and there's great opportunity in Europe. A great summary there from both Jan and Brianne. In addition, I think James, a partner at Boulderton Ventures, a fund that was originally founded by Benchmark, a US fund, but has subsequently become independent from this firm, summarizes how IRR improvements within Europe have led to an influx of interest from US funds. However, there's still been a reluctance for them to set up shop until recently. If you look at the, the European funds, average IRR, the European VC fund, I think a fund over $100 million I think is the baseline. It's higher in Europe than it, than it has been in the US and China over the last five years. Uh, and over a 10-year mark, Europe's overtaken China and catching up with the US as well. So fundamentally, it's a great place to invest. It has been a great place to invest over the last decade. As a result, obviously, that's increased the availability of capital and the amount of talent coming into the market, and it's become more competitive in certain regards. Um, you know, what surprised me, certainly the speed of change, you know, I think that there were many of our businesses who approached West Coast, in particular VCs, maybe five years ago, and the, the reason for passing was often, look, we just don't invest in that region, right? We just don't do that geography. And, and for some good reasons, right? If you don't have the network or you don't have the regulatory knowledge or you don't have you know, the ability even just to spend time with founders in person. There's lots of good reasons why you would pass on even excellent businesses as a venture capitalist, because you just can't commit to either the learning curve or the, all the time to help. So there's good reasons why geography matters, good reasons why they passed. It wasn't like they just didn't like European businesses, right? It was just fundamental reasons why they couldn't do it. And um, that attitude has shifted uh, overnight almost. We will touch on this attitude shift a little later, but James proceeds to make some great comments. So I'll tease you for now and let him continue. Um, you know, we've always had follow-on investment from great US firms. You know, our heritage and benchmark meant we co-invested with Benchmark many times, but we've co-invested with Sequoia and A16Z, a whole broad range of the, of the very top tier investors in, in, in the Valley. Um, and that, that hasn't changed that much. We've always worked with those kind of people, um, but the scale at which we're working with them has, has increased a lot. James's core point is as follows. The growing strength of European returns compared to other regions has caused US funds that previously stayed away for good reasons to start getting past those reasons. One such historical barrier to US engagement has been geography. And in this case, the change in thinking has been spurred by more than just IRR. Here's Judith, a partner at La Familia, a pan-European seed stage fund that focuses on B2B businesses. In this clip, watch out for a guest appearance from the legendary Tunde. So I think it, it's really, for me, related to COVID, right? It's really related to, I think, I mean, there's always been U.S. presence, especially at the later stages um, of investing, because it, that's just been an, uh, an important source of, of growth capital for, for founders. I think why now, in terms of just the frequency of setting up offices in European capital, is because, you know, with COVID and with remote work, being a reality pre-COVID, but just being accelerated. And I think it's interesting because a lot of the trends um, and a lot of the downturns or like the, the market cooling off right now 
come from the fact that things that we accelerated during COVID now decelerated again, right? So speaking about e-commerce adoption, speaking about our Netflix or Peloton subscriptions, but then there's this other really curious behavior, which is kind of international work, remote work, remote and international talent bases. They kind of seem here to stay. And so many companies are now struggling to convince all of their employees to come back to the office, you know, kind of uh, for five days or even three or four days a week. And, and companies, you know, are accepting and are embracing the fact that their um, future talent market will really be an international market. And so I think that goes both for the venture ecosystem as well as kind of the tech innovation ecosystem um, more broadly. And so for me, the why now, why are U.S. funds or international funds increasing their presence in Europe is very clearly tied to the pandemic and tied to us embracing this international talent base and really understanding that the potential geographical barriers that we might have had in our minds in terms of thinking about our business activity were really barriers that existed mostly in our mind um, and, and are otherwise artificial because we can have that international presence and an international investment profile. So it's, it's, it's almost like the, the pandemic just kind of woke people up to the reality that, that this was always possible. So before like geography was almost like a facade. Um, and it, so it, it was, yeah, it was like, I, I would think about geography as this like bottleneck that people considered. And we now realize it's not, it's, it's still a bottleneck. I mean, time zones are still a bottleneck, but it's not as big a bottleneck as we, you know, maybe thought of before. And so it's the talent base, I think is the, is the primary reason. I think that's kind of like going back to first principles, the funds are not here just because of COVID, like if they didn't think there was great companies here, COVID wouldn't have made the difference. But the talent base was always strong. The talent base was on this upward trajectory. But then the, the thing that changed in a very brief period of time was COVID and was kind of the way that, you know, funding rounds get done and the way that we also are able to, you know, do due diligences online or remotely. And so I think these two trends laid on top of each other then really created for, you know, kind of the increased presence of international funds in Europe. Judith's argument goes as follows. Europe always had potential, which was becoming increasingly apparent as investors could see it in the IRR. COVID then made it so that US investors were forced to take notice as remote work made geography largely irrelevant. Brianne, another one of our guests, notes that geography shrinking in importance has had wider effects. Echoing a trend she saw when working in the US, money isn't just flowing to the obvious hubs, but in fact, all over Europe. I think this was, you know, three, five years ago, but the U.S., there's sort of different, not classes, but definitely different types of VC. You know, Silicon Valley VC is a very different game from East Coast VC. Um, and even when I was in New York City, you started to see this you know, emergence of non-coastal capital, which was really exciting. So you started to see more and more investors spending time in the Valley and you would do that, but it was hard to compete from the outside. So places like New York and Chicago, Boston got way more exciting. And then people realized like, wow, there's, you know, exciting opportunities to invest and to start up more local funds in places like Columbus, Ohio, or in Miami or in Austin, Texas. So I think that was sort of going on right when I was leaving New York City. And it was kind of funny to come here and discover I think a little bit of the same thing happening in just the last three years in Europe, you know, like London obviously still has, I think the most funding, don't quote me on that, but like the highest number of startups, most funded uh, companies, 
but certainly over the you know last few years, you're starting to see more and more ecosystems sort of popping up, getting stronger, more funding going to Germany, to the Netherlands, to France, to the Nordics. So sort of watching that sort of similar spread happen has been really nice. Yes, Brianne is absolutely right. The UK did indeed have the most funding last year, having raised $37.8 billion. It then goes Germany with $19.1 billion, France with $11.4 billion, Sweden $8.2, and the Netherlands raised $6.4 billion. All demonstrating that there really is quite the spread of capital being deployed across Europe. It is important to add that these numbers are the total amount invested in these countries. However, US money is contributing significantly to this total. To give you some statistics here, all deals that have had at least one US investor in Europe reached 28% last year. Put that in perspective, in 2017, it was 60%. Hopefully, these statistics alone justifies why we're making a whole mini-series out of the topic. Anyway, back to our current conversation, this spread of capital happening across Europe. I continued my conversation with Brianne as I'm a stickler for pattern recognition and love discussing it. It's so interesting you say that. So just before you were leaving, there was like this spread of capital happening across the U.S. where it was not just the coasts. And then three years later now, we're seeing almost like that spread coming into Europe, which is so interesting. And why do you think that is? Yeah, wow. I mean total guesses, but I think part of it is that people realized on the VC side that you can literally try and, you know, kill each other competing for the same five companies in a, you know, what is ultimately globally like a pretty small city. Or you can look for really amazing founders and entrepreneurs in other places. Rianne touched on a key point here, competition. Competition has driven individuals to turn their focus outside of saturated tech ecosystems and set up new ones across Europe to start their business. Anna, a founding partner at Trellis Road, a food tech fund headquartered in Stockholm, has spent some time in Silicon Valley and spotted how the US and specifically the Valley was a place to be when she was there and how over time this perception appears to be changing and has resulted in the spread of capital across different geographies other than just simply staying put in Silicon Valley. Anna explains in more detail in this clip. Five years ago, it was a very strategic position. I'm like, okay, do you target U.S. investors as a European company? And that would come with certain implications. Like, okay, maybe you have to relocate to the U.S. Maybe you need some presence there, etc. Whereas today, I think that most investors realize as well that, okay, you can make a lot of things work over Zoom. Uh, you can travel. I think it's just a mindset different where you have investors thinking about the world in a much more global sense. I think I don't want to be in any way sort of negative towards U.S. investors because obviously there are so many intelligent, smart ones. I do think there is a sort of element still of perceiving especially Silicon Valley and San Francisco as sort of the place to be. And I think we we keep hearing founders saying that, okay, if you spend two months in actually like 
going to the blue bottle coffee shops with these investors, you're invited to a barbecue at someone's house on a Sunday. Like it is those type of things that still opens a lot of doors. And I think that's sad in a way, because I think it's extremely exclusive and it's, uh, yeah, from many different perspectives, I think I understand it has worked very well from an investor perspective. It has been a very sort of invite only club, sort of both on the investor and startup side. And I think yeah, a more global mindset, it obviously opens door for people who otherwise wouldn't have access to capital. And I think like Europe is one thing, but again, like for example, we've invested in a few Latin American companies and they all raise money from US-based investors without any big, big issues, I would say. So similar to Judith, Anna notices that digitization really does open a lot of doors that maybe were only once available to those who were in Silicon Valley. Excitingly, this means that these hubs aren't the only place to be. Another thought behind why the opportunity has expanded further outside of these hubs is due to the US political climate, which Anna also highlights. I think in every event, every investor panel, there was always the question of like, okay, how can we learn from Silicon Valley? How can we adapt the San Francisco mindset to Stockholm or Berlin or whatever? Um, and to be honest, I, I think for many different reasons, not only tied to startups and, and investors, but probably also very political reasons. I think with the Trump, for example, with a lot of uh, sort of a general shift in the perception of the U.S. versus other parts of the world, I think more and more, or at least what I hear is more and more investors and founders who are truly proud of the European and I think that simply wasn't the case five, six years ago. Every founder would think about like, how can you, um, I almost feel like every startup was on the quest of pretending to have stronger U.S. ties than you really did. So perhaps we're seeing a pattern here. Let's set the scene. It is a pretty unanimous fact that Silicon Valley is the birthplace of venture capital. As this ecosystem grew, more and more startups got funded and more and more unicorns were born. As returns started to look more and more attractive, this led to a flood of new funds setting up shop, creating a very competitive flywheel. Funds started to compete for the best deals and inflated prices. And as a result, more and more university dropouts moved to Silicon Valley in the hopes that their dreams would be funded. Subsequently, Prices rose, quality of life depreciated, and only the respective kings and queens of the castle enjoyed life. However, then we see a shift starting to happen. The successfuls and non-successfuls decided to move out of the hub as they realized they could have a better quality of life without having to pay $20 for a frappuccino and, quite frankly, fed up with the political decisions decided by a certain president. The mindset shift of I can do it anywhere has led to Silicon Valley still remaining an it place, but is now not quite the only place to be to start your business. Instead, distribution started to occur, enabled by digitization and thus new hubs started to emerge. However, we are now seeing this pattern emerge again in Europe as more European uniforms are announced. On reflection, it kind of seems blindingly obvious. So originally US funds were in Silicon Valley, 
that became saturated. So they leaked into other areas of these states. And then Europe started becoming a rich ecosystem, starting perhaps with London, but now, as Brianne mentions, has really been an influx of billions worth of capital across multiple different European cities. This kind of hub leakage makes it kind of inevitable that international companies with big pockets who are getting fed up with playing in their own circle are looking elsewhere. In a recent Pitchbook article, the newly rebranded Phoenix Court Ventures, originally called Local Glow, have a fund focus on the rather unimaginatively termed New Powell Auto. This area being defined as the area within a four-hour journey of central London. It includes Paris, Amsterdam, and Brussels, as well as UK cities in the north and south of England, such as Bristol, Manchester, and Oxford. You can't help but think this name is sort of like a neon sign for deep pockets that need an analogy to get acquainted with a new hub. But I think it is quite lacklustre that you should bundle a whole load of cities that have their very own right to stand alone as a single hub into one. But I'll come on to that later. So, back to Anna's point, she mentions that South America's startups are still doing well without US funds having feet on the ground. So why are US funds setting up offices now, almost overnight, as James alluded to earlier? IRR, COVID, these are some reasons. Changes of perceptions, these are another. Here's Paul. He was the first pair of boots on the ground for Lightspeeds, but his thoughts on the topic. I mean, the Lightspeed has been investing here for a while. And I think what Lightspeed's view on geographic expansion is that if you're going to do it, you do it properly and you stick to it. You don't sort of dip your toe in the water. Um, so they were one of the first Silicon Valley funds to enter Israel. And they're one of the last that has remained. And that's, I think, a large part how they set it up. It was very intentional. They knew that sometimes it takes, you know, it takes a couple dips. You have to kind of grow and shrink with the market to really kind of establish a permanent presence. I think some really awesome funds started establishing kind of sources of capital here in Europe to support European growth companies. And I think the, you know, the opportunity for U.S. funds to just sort of come in and selectively grab a winner here, a winner there, I think that became more difficult, much more competitive. And at the same time, we saw more early stage companies forming in Europe than ever before. And so it just felt like, you know, why would you not take advantage of that? But the, you know, Lesby wasn't going to sort of set up until they found, you know, the right team and the right strategy. And so that that's, you know, everything kind of came together about a year ago. So we're back to competition again. Competition, competition, competition. As the tech ecosystem has matured in Europe, people flock. One of my favorite English idioms is where the bee sucks, there suck I. And Zoe from Frontline had also spotted that there's something to be said about FOMO. So I think timing has come. The success has started coming through. The price has started getting a bit too much for those funds to make it work. The idea that they could travel a bit more, have a local trusted partner definitely played through. They were investing in other states that weren't just bi-coastal in America. So why not extend that a little bit more to Europe? We speak the same language. And of course, Sequoia wrote an article about it saying that this was the future. So I think that if the best fund in the world says that, you kind of sit up and pay attention. A general consensus of our guests for the season is that it's just not good enough anymore just to fly in and fly out and snap up the Series Bs. But now, not just US funds, 
But all venture firms interested in investing in European startups in Europe have to develop a strategy to win these deals as the frequency of unicorn statuses in Europe increases and competition is on the rise. Let's put a statistic on this. There was only one unicorn in Europe in 2012, and the number has risen to 132 in a decade. Isn't that phenomenal? Jan from HV explains how he sees the market changing with Tunde. Now we see many of them come earlier. And I mean, we just announced a couple of days ago, PayRails, you know, and a seed investment we did with A16Z was a big seed round to be fair, but you know what I mean? You know, it's kind of, it was three people from Delivery Hero. So I think that's really emblematic of how US funds are coming in. Yeah. And I guess you, you mentioned like A16Z doing the seed round of, of PayRails. I mean, his, historically you know, U.S. funds have been seen as like series B plus style investors. Do you, do you see them also like coming earlier? Is like pay rails now much more typical than it was um, a few years ago, or, or is it still kind of normally bifurcated by stage and size of round? I think most funds, I mean, you see us broadening our investment scope. I think the general tendency of funds is to broaden kind of the scope which stage you're going in. People are raising opportunity funds left and right, you know, trying to raise growth funds. We raised this continuation fund, you know, which allows us to hold on to startups even longer than the normal runtime of a fund, you know, a bit like, was it Sequoia who did that in the US? Um, yeah, so I think it's everyone's scrambling, right, to, to get into the good deals. We will touch on continuation funds in a later episode. But for those who are wondering what it is, in space UN, a fund is no longer restricted to a time period before they need to return money to their limited partners. Anyway, back to the point in question. Why set up an office in Europe now? I think Tunde touched on a great point here. Not only are we seeing the volume of US funds doing deals here, but also going earlier and earlier. So perhaps having feet in the ground is important here, as the Series B. You can't rely on big market signaling, but rather you need to be close to the source. As with early stage deals, there's often a correlation between being the first to know and being the first in line. Zoe agrees, but perhaps more interestingly, discusses some sectors where US capital have not quite reached early stage startups in Europe. FinTech, where I think Europe was ahead and SaaS, like kind of what I'd call obvious sectors and growth stage. So, I mean, B, C plus. I think we saw the move down market quite a lot last year, actually. Uh, Series A, uh, seed, albeit I would say not into sectors like deep tech and bio. What will be more interesting is to see if it, it, it continues as the perceived downturn hits. Back to the cyclical pattern we have been seeing in states replicating in Europe. Many believe we are seeing just the start of this happy flywheel of investors and startups strengthening the tech ecosystem in Europe. And it will be very interesting to see how it progresses, especially as Zoe mentioned, when we are expected to have a downturn. In this conversation, we have mainly discussed how US money comes into Europe. However, Frontline Ventures has a fund that is telling of how it's not just a one-way street between the US and Europe. Zoe explains. So Frontline is uh, made up of two sister funds, both with a B2B only focus, 
Uh, one of those is a pre-seed or seed stage fund, so focused on pan-European investments. And the other, its big sister, is a growth stage fund focused on high growth US companies that are planning to expand into Europe in their short-term horizon. But I think the growth stage thesis came from the, the following, which is, and, and we crunched, as with a lot of hopefully good decisions, it was partly gut feel and partly crunching some actual data to check that what we were thinking was sensible. So we saw that what happens uh, in a lot of cases before high tech growth companies go and list, they are obviously a lot of the time having all of their revenues, if a vast majority are in states, which is brilliant. Uh, it's an amazing market. You don't actually need to go outside it, but it can really strengthen the growth equity story and the story you build your book on and your listing price. If you talk about, and you have evidence to start showing uh, that you have a diverse revenue stream. So you have revenues in Europe, you have a team in Europe. And one of my colleagues, Jamie, actually did an amazing report on this, which showed that European expansion can actually lift IPO valuation by 55%. So that is really leaving a lot of money on the table if you therefore don't think about that. And of course, it means it needs a bit of a longer building. And that means that we need to be kind of by their side when they're still in the States, but where they probably sat down with the board and said, do you know what, in the next 12 to 24 months, it has to be on the agenda. We have to start getting revenues from there and we have to be able to start building the narrative that our future, our public, you know, investors and the analysts who are going to look at us can believe in. Um, because that gives us a whole another area of headroom for that growth piece. So, um, yeah, I could obviously talk about it all day. I sound very enthusiastic about it because I, I think it's really, really compelling. So with this innovative strategy, it's clear that U.S. funds can not only benefit from investing in European startups, but also U.S. startups with the help of European funds can help increase their IPO valuation. It is amazing to see that there are so many synergistic relationships that can happen as ecosystems mature and boundary lines around siloed tech hubs begin to blur. Now, to conclude, I want to summarize our findings from our conversation. So in essence, U.S. funds have been plucking the best European startups and supporting them in their efforts to launch in the U.S. at a series B, C stage for the last 10 years. However, as more and more unicorns appear, European ecosystems grow off the initial success of European first movers. This, coupled with the valuations of US startups rising up and it generally becoming such a saturated ecosystem, and of course the general mindset that innovation can happen anywhere with COVID underlining this fact, leads to a sparkling opportunity of European tech glinting across the pond from US investors. However, as with anything that is hot, competition is rife and valuations will rise. In short, your Series B, C investment in Europe is no longer looking like you've got a great deal. In fact, you're looking at a reflection of your own market. Therefore, having visibility and building relationships within the European ecosystem to get access to the earlier rounds and thus a substantial equity stake makes a strong business case for US funds to have their feet on the ground in Europe. This pattern applies to most mainstream and popular sectors such as fintech and enterprise SaaS, but perhaps there is still less of a requirement to do so if you're a specialist fund, where the sheer number of companies within these spaces are limited and highly dispersed geographically. So visibility relies less on being familiar with the regional tech ecosystem, but rather other network channels linked to the particular niche. It will be interesting to see if the US funds will continue their flurry of we are here announcements, or rather, 
retreat back or remain in their cozy nucleus of Sunset Boulevard as the financial downturn snaps the tendrils of money pouring into European hubs. Only time will tell. And now, to perhaps close with something, I would like to place my own personal gauntlet down on the why now topic that has been on my mind. I recently read the Sakura article written by the Financial Times. If you haven't read this article, do, as it paints quite a narrow view of the European ecosystem that was not very well received by those who've been in Europe for some time. Another article that raised some eyebrows was Local Globe's Pitchbook article painting Europe as the next US with analogies such as describing a collection of European startup hubs as the next Palo Alto. I'm aware that pattern recognition can help us understand and make informed decisions, but I find it perplexing that some individuals paint it as if US funds have discovered this new land of opportunity. Instead, I think we should be focusing on celebrating everyone who has helped contribute towards the growth of the European startup ecosystem. From early founders and venture capital firms to US funds that have supported later stage investments and everyone in between. It is, at the end of the day, a group effort. Brianne puts it well. You know, I don't know. Um, truly, I think, and this is rich coming from an American that's even in Europe, but I find it annoying, uh, the attitude of, you know, like the U.S. VCs or U.S. tech sort of like Columbusing Europe, like they discovered it. And because it mm -hmm. happened to, you know, arrive on the U.S. tech radar screen, um, that's therefore the beginning of European tech. I think it's always been a really exciting scene. So yeah, welcome to the party, but don't mistake the invitation for like creating the scene over here please. And on that note, thanks for listening. Please join us in a couple of weeks time for our next episode. I promise you it will be worth it. And of course, please feel free to leave us a message either on Twitter at associated underscore pod or email us at associatedpodcast at gmail.com. And it would be greatly appreciated if you liked, shared to those who might be interested. We'd like to get this content out to as many ears as possible. Thanks. Bye.